When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Mertnik tek let az igéret, és a ti gyermekei teknek, és mindazoknak, kik messze vannak, valakiket csak elhív magának az Úr, a mi Istenünk. Ingvai zsö ingsű sögeű nímen, hanímen de árnyú, car la promesse est pour vous, pour vos enfants et pour tous ceux qui sont au loin, en aussi grand nombre que le Seigneur, notre Dieu, les appellera. En effet, la promesse est pour ustedes, pour sus hijos et pour tous les étrangers, c'est-à-dire pour tous ceux à qui le Seigneur, notre Dieu, veut appeler. This is the word of the Lord. There were four languages there in case you missed it, which makes us all incredibly resentful of you, Ruben, and your language acquisition. I was in Japan with Ruben and all of the Japanese peoples there went on and on about how amazing his accent was and his Japanese was, so I'm bitter, I'm just gonna say. 
welcome. I'm uh, Bart Garrett, the lead pastor here. If you're new with us, I want to just join Tommy in saying welcome to you. And it seems like every June for me, I get in reflection mode. And it's because 17 Junes ago, our family moved to California. So I start uh, reflecting on life in California. And particularly with my vocation, I uh, start thinking particularly about church in California and what church in California actually means and what it looks like. And so I remember years back, 15, 16 years ago in Berkeley, uh, finding a little fine arts theater in downtown Berkeley where we were going to meet. But in order to meet in the fine arts theater, you had to prove that you were a cultural use entity. So I remember uh, going to the city of Berkeley's zoning administration board and giving them a little talk that I wrote on the nature of the word cultus in Latin, which means worship, where we derive the word culture, just to prove that we were cultural enough to meet in that space. And then in Oakland, I remember my next door neighbor when she learned what I did and she asked that uh, dreaded question, you know, what is it you do? And I told her I was a minister and she said, oh, people still do that full time. And then when I was in Lafayette looking at starting a church location over there, I was invited to play golf at the Arenda Country Club and we got placed with another twosome and of course the dreaded question, what do you do? And I told them that I was a pastor and we were looking at this new church option in Lafayette and he said, well, I suppose church is important for when people die. And then I came to WCPC, and the first two pieces of mail I received, and I'm not making this up, were from two different real estate agents offering us $28 million and $32 million for our facility, respectively. And so I wonder, uh, what in the world is the church? Is it just a, a harmless piece of culture? Is it just a real estate acquisition? Are we intolerant and all judgy? Like what in the world is a church? What does it mean to be the church today? And on Pentecost, which I'll say more about in a few minutes, I think it's important to get back to first principles. So if you're new with us, if you're exploring Christian faith, this is uh, a great Sunday for you to be here because I'm just going to try to lay it all out from this passage answering the question, what in the world is the church? And I would answer that question this way. The church is a people who know God's love, come to Jesus, receive the Holy Spirit, and live for others. What in the world is the church? The church is a people who know God's love, come to Jesus, receive the Spirit and live for others. So I want to just unpack that for a few minutes here. Uh, firstly, the church is a people who know God's love. And in order to know God's love, you kind of have to know God. And when you get into the Christian story, you get into this doctrine of the Trinity, which I'll say is a dizzying doctrine, and thousands of pages have been written on the Trinity. So in a couple minutes, I can offer you uh, what I've offered in a, in a few sermons in our book on Acts, which is simply this. Um, God is not three gods, because God is two one for that. And God is not one person, because God is two three for that. And so when we contend historically with the doctrine of the Trinity, we had the Hebrews, the people of God, who, who experienced God the Father. They were rigorous monotheists. They woke up every morning and prayed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They experienced a Father as God, and then they had to contend with Jesus, the Son, as God. And then in this moment, they start contending with the Holy Spirit as God. And philosophically, I might say it this way, 
all of those mythologies around how the world came to be, the world came to be usually from this God, this unipersonal God who through power and usually abusive power created what came to be known as the world. The difference here is we don't have this unipersonal God of power, but this tripersonal God of love. So the theologian Jimi Hendrix, when he was asked the question, uh, what can we do to fix the world? He said, it won't be the love of power, but the power of love. And by analogy, I took each of our three daughters when they were in fourth grade to a Yosemite camping trip. It was their fourth grade field trip. And uh, the chaperones, and this was a little harried, we took 40, you know, fourth graders up the Mist Trail by the Vernal Falls all the way up. And some of you are nodding your head because you've been there to Nevada Falls. And when you get up to the top, there's this sheer rock face. And when you lay on the ground, you can literally feel the ground shaking because of the power of the waterfall. It is a a majestic, powerful moment. And then I remember that night, you know, being in the tent with each of my daughters, and one of them saying to me as there was light rain falling, uh, Dad, I'm so glad you came. I love you. It was this moment of, of immense love. And that's what's happening when this God, the magnificent presence of the Trinity in loving power and powerful love is content in his godness. God doesn't need us, but God wants us and God creates us. And that's what's happening in verse 11 here where they are declaring the wonders of God, the the megaleia. And that word could be translated, and I like this translation better, the wonderful works of God. There's this theologian, a Dutch theologian named Hermann Bavink, and over the last 20 years, a lot of his writings is finally being translated into English. And so pastors and scholars and theologians are, are all giddy. It's like a new Taylor Swift album has come out. Like we're just, this, his work is amazing. And he has this book entitled The Wonderful Works of God. And he's got this amazing passage on revelation and on creation. And he's reminding us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with you and me in mind. There's an intensity to God's love for us. And you should note here, there's loving inclusion to this message. Wasn't it beautiful the way Reuben read it that in verse 6, each one heard their own language being spoken. And then in verse 11, declaring the wonderful works of God in our own tongues. That God not only celebrates but creates cultural diversity. And I don't want you to miss the key point here. Four times in this passage, we get a people who are bewildered and perplexed and amazed and astonished. Why is this so? Is it from verse 2, the the mighty rushing wind? Is it verse 3, the flames of, of fire and the pyrotechnics of the moment? No, that's not why they're so amazed. In fact, why they're so amazed is from everywhere in the world, in their own language and culture, they understood the powerful love of God. You see, language is the bearer of culture. So here's the grand miracle, and don't miss this. I'll say it twice. No language or culture has pride of place in Christianity. Let me say that again. No language or culture has pride of place in Christianity. There is no culture that is the OG, that is the original. 
Laman Sane, who's a Gambian professor who came to Yale and is a history prof. Uh, he was Muslim early, early in his life. He converted to Christianity. And he uh, refers to Christianity as the most culturally diverse religion in the world. And he uses secularism as a foil in one of his works, and this is what he writes. He says, secularism is far less diverse than Christianity. To be an African is to believe that the world is supernatural and spiritually alive. But you go to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton to get Western educated, and they say, I love your music and the way you dress and your food, but there are no miracles, and science explains everything. But Christianity helps Africans become renewed Africans and not remade Europeans. So what in the world is the church? The church is a people who know God's love. And secondly, they come to Jesus. And I put just a little clipping of Peter's sermon. You can go back and read it later or use your pew Bible. But in verse 22 through 24, he talks about Jesus of Nazareth. And make no mistake, Jesus comes from the wrong side of the track. Does anything good come from Nazareth that was said? But he is the one who is God and Savior, Lord and Messiah. Because of his crucifixion, because of his resurrection, because, as it says here, death couldn't keep a hold of him. In verse 36, God makes him Lord and Messiah, which would have the people of God asking the question, wait a, wait a second, are you saying God in God's self is also the Savior of the world? We knew a Messiah was coming, but are you saying this Messiah is God incarnate? Yes, precisely. And what were they? They were cut to the heart. It is not a mere flesh wound. Princess Bride reference. They were cut to the core of who they were. So what should we do? They asked the question. Well, the answer was, was not find a way back to God somehow. It was in verse 38, come to Jesus, repent. And before that word sprouts wings and flies away because it's a churchy word, it's actually not a religious word. It's a military term. It means quite literally on the battlefield, an about face. Turn from something to something else. So what are we called to turn from? What are we called to turn toward? Well, we turn away from this notion that we don't need God to survive. I don't know if you read uh, Paradise Lost by Milton. A lot of us had to read it in high school, perhaps. Do you remember Satan's original sin? As Milton writes in Paradise Lost, what he's telling us is that Satan had this notion that he was self-created. In other words, he wasn't contingent. And when God reminds Satan that he was actually created, he retorts. And this is what he said, who saw when this creation was? We know no time when we were not as now. We know none before us, self-begot, self-made. And then Milton would go on and say, we cannot build Babel. We must destroy it. And that reference is to the Tower of Babel because writ large in the story of Christianity, writ large is this moment where all of these people who forgot that God even created them said, let us build a tower all the way to the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves and there will be no limit to what we can do. And if you know the story, I love the way Moses writes. He, he writes that then God came down to look and see what they were building. 
This monumental thing that, that God sees as, as minuscule. You know, this colossal tower. God's like, oh, that's cute. And that moment makes me think about 20 years ago, some of you might remember this, there was this uh, church campaign where there was all these black billboards showing up all over the country and in white lettering were these messages from God and you're nodding your head. So one of them I remember is like, um, if you use my name in vain, I'll make rush hour 30 minutes longer, God. You know, and one of them said, don't make me come down there, God. But at Babel, God doesn't come down, firstly in judgment. He, he comes down in gracious preservation because he's saying there is no limit to what they can do. Apart from me, they will ravage themselves. They will ravage one another. Their abuse of money, sex, and power will be uh, a classism and a sexism and a racism that they will not be able to handle. So God graciously foils the plot and he confuses their languages. Russian, Italian, French, Thousand Island, balsamic vinaigrette. But what is God doing? He's saving them from themselves. So what about you? What about me? Do we live lives where we assume we're self-created, self-sufficient, where we become self-made men and self-made women? You know, it's graduation season. I've heard a couple, three commencement addresses. You do you. Follow your heart. Be all you can be. There's nothing that will stop you except you. That's that word in Greek, hamartia, the fatal flaw. To quote here, our damned pride. Hubris, overweening pride. But in verse 39, we see in Peter's sermon that there's a promise for every one of us. And if we back up to verse 38, that promise is that we, through Jesus, can receive forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness from that pride that we cannot dismantle ourselves. And the promise, again, did you catch it? It's for everyone. Not the rich, not the poor, not white, not black, not brown, not Western, not Eastern, not Republican, not Democrat. It's for everyone. That's why I love quoting Martin Luther King Jr., who so often in his sermons would say, the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. Because every single one of us needs to be forgiven. That's what it means to come to Jesus. And verse 38, to be baptized, to become identified with Jesus and Jesus' body. So what in the world is the church? The church is the people who know God's love, who come to Jesus, and thirdly, who receive, verse 38, the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit is showing up in this mighty rushing wind in verse 2, and these tongues of fire in verse 3, and there's instant language acquisition in this story. But what is the most amazeballs piece of this whole story, as the kids would say? You know what it is? Here it is. All of them were, verse 38, filled with the Holy Spirit. God was inside of them. See, before this moment, the Holy Spirit would do the, the pop-in or the drive-by or the fly-over, catch me if you can, now you see me, now you don't. But now God is taking up residence inside of them. So what does that look like? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, I mentioned we have a clue. Today is 
is Pentecost. And you may say, what in the world is a church? You may also say, what in the world is Pentecost? That's a weird word. Well, Pentecost means 50th day, and it came to be celebrated 50 days after the Passover, and it was the day that Moses went up to Mount Sinai where he had a tongue of fire over him and was given the law of God. And then he came back and the people became redeemed to this new way of life, delivered to this law. And so what you should see in Pentecost, and this is beautiful, is a Babel Babel reversal, a Tower of Babel reversal, and a Mount Sinai redo or redux. Because at Babel there was this cacophony of chaos. And all of a sudden at Pentecost, there's this chorus of clarity. At Babel there was this Uh, A bunch of languages and tongues with no understanding. And at Pentecost, it's all making sense. And at Sinai, Moses came down with the law of God written on tablets of stone. But at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down and writes the law of God on our hearts. Jesus, at day 40, the ascension, would leave to return one day, but would leave so that at Pentecost, day 50, the Holy Spirit would come. Did did you catch that? In other words, Jesus is saying, my people are better off with the Spirit within them than they are with me beside them. That's crazy. So we get the rest of the story, and, and we'll be talking about this actually in this brand new series we're starting next week, and your preachers are incredibly excited about it. We're entitling it, What Does a Christian Look Like? And we're using different passages to talk through all the fruit of the Spirit this summer. And we'll learn from Paul as he writes this uh, letter to the church in Galatia that there's really three ways of being human. There's really only three ways to live. You can live in the flesh— which is, you know, the you do you, the go find yourself, you can be free. But what happens when you live that way, when you just live to your own devices, is you actually realize, you know what, I'm, I'm shackled to myself. Frederick Nietzsche got this, of all people. He said, if God is dead, then we're free to do whatever we want to do. But is there anything really worth doing? So some of us have that realization. We say, well, well living in the flesh doesn't work. Let me get religious. Let me live under the law. But the law breaks us, and it it often provokes us right up to the limit. So we find the loophole, the speed limit, right? How fast can I drive without getting pulled over? So that way of living crushes us. Paul says, oh, well, here's one for you. Don't live in the flesh. Don't live under the law. Live by the Spirit. See, to have standards is not wrong, but standards don't motivate us, do they? So we're invited to the alternative, you know, when, you, uh, when you're following someone, say you're on the one and there's all those guardrails because you're right on the coastline. When you follow someone, you're not looking at the guardrails, right? You're following the person that's, that's leading you. And we have these laws, we have these guardrails, there are these designs for us to live Christianly, if you will. But the Spirit is inviting us. It's an invitation to follow. And that Spirit is, is comforting us along the way is counseling us along the way, is advocating for us along the way, is standing up when we are succumbed to our guilt and shame and our anxiety and our fear, and is recognizing that, that our own heart is not a hospitable environs to grace. And so the Holy Spirit keeps saying, no, 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 it, there's grace in the journey. Let me advocate for you. Jesus has made a way for you. 
So I would conclude by just asking the basic question, what would it look like if the Holy Spirit was inside of you? Where would you go for comfort and counsel and advocacy and direction? You'd go to that Spirit who is possessing you. If the Spirit of God took up residence within you, imagine what life would be like. So some of my favorite books and some of my favorite movies always involve a plot under the plot. You know, it's the aha moment of like, oh, that's what's happening. Well, Pentecost has all these plots under the plot. It's got the Tower of Babel reversal where all of these languages bring clarity. It's got this Sinai redux or redo where the law of God is written on our hearts. It also has a renovated temple because Paul would go on to write to the church in Corinth, hey, do you yourselves not know that you're a new temple and that God's spirit is dwelling inside of you? God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, has taken up residence in your life? If that's true, it brings us to the the fourth dimension of the church, a desire to live for others. Did you catch it in verse 39? This is for all who are far off, for any and everyone whom the Lord may call. And I would humbly suggest that if there's someone in your life that doesn't know Jesus, And the good news of this gospel, they're actually on a mission from God to be loved by you, to be served by you. And I I have to contend with the collective here because it's not just about you. It's not just about me. It's about us. It's about our church. And there are two collective responses to the church here. One of them I've already talked about, verse 6 and 12. People were bewildered and amazed and perplexed and they said, well, well, what does all this mean? What do we do? And then the other one is in verse 13. The, the, the church was mocked and ridiculed and scorned. And they asked the question, well, have they had too much wine? And Peter said, well, well no, they're not drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. And I kind of wanted to title this sermon, it's 9 a.m. somewhere, but, but I thought better of it. And this is humorous in the story, and we can laugh at it. But, let, but let's dwell here as we conclude and come to the table. People were looking in on this movement, the church, and it looks like a bunch of people who are full of joy and with lowered inhibitions. They're no longer inhibited by fear and anxiety and anger. People look in on the church and they say, wow, what sort of concoction has a hold on these people? They're a people of contagious joy and deep purpose of living for others. That's presence of God stuff. That's Holy Spirit stuff. But what in the world is the church? It's not a harmless invention of culture. It's not something we play at part-time. It's not a place for funerals. It's not an expensive piece of real estate. The church is a people who know the love of God, who come to Jesus, who receive the Holy Spirit, and who live for others. Would you pray with me? God, as we get back to first principles today on Pentecost Sunday, would we be uh, deeply mindful of our mission and purpose here at WCPC? Uh, For those in our midst who might um, be a little bit on the outside looking in, maybe tuning in online or, or sitting in the pew this morning, um, would they hear this summons is not to 
uh, lead a perfect life in our own power, but the summons is actually to receive your sacrificial love. As we meet you at this table, Lord Jesus, I hope the sentiment we all profess is we cannot do this in our own strength or effort, but it doesn't depend on us. It depends on you. Would we be faithful and open and humble to receive your work, to live animated lives, noting that right now residing in each of us is a comforter, an advocate, and a counselor. We pray these things in your name. Amen.